Well, Claude, firstly, thank you for joining us today. And I thought we'd start off by looking at the start of your career. And I think it's fair to say that the heart of your success is your grit, forthrightness, and obviously your entrepreneurial talent. Do you think that you're a natural entrepreneur, or do you think it's a skill that you can learn over time? Well, you started with a difficult question. Um, <laughs> look, I, I've always been very commercial. So even when I was very young, uh, even at school, I, have, I found ways of kind of selling my best friends, um, you know, gobstoppers at a, a penny when they cost me a halfpenny. So I've always been kind of very commercial. I've always been like, you know, looking at shares and banks and how to invest. So I've always been very, very interested in that. So I don't know whether that's the sort of key to being entrepreneur entrepreneurial, but the truth is that um, there's nothing else I was any good at. So um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine, I, I'm, I was quite good at tennis. I could have been a moderate tennis player, but I think that um, business was the one thing that I was, I think I was made for, and fortunately, um, I found the good. Th you know, I found the thing that I was good at. So you said that you're obsessed with winning throughout your career. What of your personality traits do you think have made that your drive? Uh, I'm just doggedly determined. So I think that um, I'm quite good at um, spotting talent and people who can help me to achieve what I want. I think that's very important because, really, I know nothing. So I rely on everybody else to kind of. Um, come up with ideas and then I determine which one we're going to go for. Um, so I think that to that extent I've got my feet firmly planted on the ground. Um, I know the kind of things I want. I know the kind of team that I kind of want to put together to make, make it successful and I just don't give up. So along any kind of turnaround for example there's always you know some good days and things you do well and some things that you do badly and the idea really is to uh, promote as much as you can the things that you do well and then if you make a mistake don't be too kind of silly uh, and, and carrying, along, carrying, carrying along a bad path. Mm. Recognise the mistake quickly and try and correct it, get out of that hole. So I think that those are the kind of things that I think I'm good at. I think that to a certain extent, um, when I say I'm inspirational, I'm always the first one in and the last one out. Um, I work hard, I try and make everyone else successful, try and motivate everyone else. So to that extent, I recognise that um, if they're working hard and they're being creative, then success will come my way and it'll be the success of the whole team. So um, I think that's the kind of thing that I, I kind of focus on where I can. And would you say that your attitude to business and success has been the same throughout your career? Or do you think now you have a different outlook? Okay, well, okay. Um, I think the thing is that when you're young, uh, you don't know everything. In fact, you know very little. Uh, but you pretend um, or you get it in your mind that you know a lot of things. And so you've got to sort of fake it or try and um, work extra hard to show how clever you are or how, uh, how much knowledge you have. When you go through um, lots of ups and downs and you've been in business uh, and living life as many years as I have, I think that um, your experience um, means that you can actually relax a bit more. You don't have to prove yourself uh, because in a way you've, you, know, you are the finished article to a certain extent. And so I think that um, I'm much more relaxed now in things I do, uh, much more comfortable within myself um, and I don't have to be quite so aggressive, so assertive, uh, and so kind of megalomaniac, really. I'm just, um, you know, I'm in a position where really I can let, other shine, let others shine through um, and really not always have to dominate the situation. Do you enjoy that kind of mentor aspect that comes later um, in the career? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. Um, and I think, surprisingly enough, people seem to be receptive to the things that I say. Um, and that gives me pleasure that I can actually help other younger people on their way. So I think I get quite a lot of, quite a lot of pleasure from that. And then I want to talk a little bit about your turnaround specialities. So I've read that once you read an article uh, in a newspaper about servicing aircraft at Coventry 
airport, an industry that you hadn't been in before, and a huge gamble, but it was mm. something about taking a risk and trying to rescue something that appealed to you. What is it about turnarounds in specific that you think is your niche, but also what is it that appeals okay. to you about them? Well, this is going to sound strange, but I've, got, um, I've kind of got low self-esteem. And so I figure that um, if you've got a company that is on its knees, I can't really do that much damage. It's already kind of <laughs> gone. So if I come in there and make a mess of it, well, you know, it was, it was finished anyway. Um, so the, the Coventry Airport one is, is a fairly good example. I mean, fancy, you know, a young man um, being offered the opportunity of going into an aircraft repair company um, and trying to turn it around. So I just thought, God, this is, this is, it's got to be a great opportunity. It doesn't matter if I fall flat on my face. I would have had the experience of actually, you know, working in, in this sort of industry. And it was fasc fascinating because they had like 707s out there and these guys were repairing 707s. Um, uh, and obviously not, not a clue about the aircraft industry, um, but it sort of occurred to me that they probably weren't costing, the company was in trouble, of course, they weren't costing out their materials well enough so that, you know, they had to do certain repairs, obviously, on these aeroplanes, large and small. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, they, they weren't, being fastidious in terms of recording what materials they were using. So at the end, they might have charged somebody £50,000 for repairing the aeroplane, but they didn't really have a good handle on whether they'd put £80,000 worth of parts in there. Um, you know, they weren't monitoring their time. So that's why the company was in trouble. So actually, very quickly, I tried to put some procedures in there so that nothing left the sort of stock room, if you like, until it had been sort of you know, billed out, cost of materials in, value of it on the way out, how many man hours they were doing, and those are the kind of things which are very, very simple. This is not, you know, great sort of mind, it's just common, simple stuff, but it's simple stuff that all the people before me had failed to do. And if you like, that's been a, a kind of a tenet of my career, is that I haven't done complicated things, I've just done very easy things, common sense things. And I think that in business, um, I think common sense is something I found absent in a lot of directors and, and people, uh, and I think that's where I, I, I score quite heavily. So when you move from one industry to a completely different industry, is that what calms you or makes you think you can do it, that it is just the basics, the simple things that you know how yeah. to do? Or are there some industries that you think, I could never get involved with that, I don't know enough? Yeah. Well, I know, as I said right at the beginning, I know nothing about anything. So, and, and I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not being uh, particularly modest about this. I, I genuinely don't know anything. Um, but uh, uh, so when I go to into, into an industry, I know that I don't know about it, but I do know about the principles of business. I do know the kind of things that would make a business tick. And whilst every business might be different in certain respects, there is a common thread that goes through business, really. Um, and you know, sometimes I've been fortunate enough to have a very good management team, like when I was in northern France, who was a, a biggest French textile manufacturer, and I had a fantastic team. Um, the guy who was the chief executive, chairman chief executive, he was a bully, and he didn't give these people the opportunity of showing how clever and resourceful they were. When I came along, because I knew nothing, they were all very, very happy to kind of you know, step up to the mark, and they were terrific. They, were ter they, they turned the company around. I, I enabled them to do it, uh, and, and that's really you know, what, where I scored very heavily in that particular example. Um, and there are lots of other examples where um, you know, I've, I've seen things go wrong, uh, or there have been terrible contracts which have been signed, and that's brought the company down. And I've just said, look, why did we ever sign this contract? It's just, it's a terrible contract. So the idea is to try and get out of that contract and try and restore profitability to the company. Um, and also, I mean, the people's egos get in the way. I had another company where 
Um, this was an oil services company, a very big uh, uh, company, um, and the directors had just lost track of trying to make a profit. They were basically looking for sales. Sales was everything, and they, they, won, they won awards for sales. And so when I got involved in the company, um, I was very impressed by the fact that they had all these awards for fastest growing company um, in whatever year it was, and they got all these sort of tombs um, for saying how great they were. Uh, but they were losing money. It was losses. So what, what's the point? And it's just because they were buying sales. Um, and so very quickly it became apparent that we had to get out of these onerous contracts, try and get some kind of structure to the place. And, um, you know, they'd, they'd be hiring private jets to take them places and they'd, had, they'd have flats um, in different countries that were never used. Um, I mean, it was I could go through a, a tale of, of woe in this particular company of just, just complete excess. And like uh, it was in Houston, for example. So I walked into um, uh, walked into the, the business in Houston, and um, I was staying at the hotel. And it was only like a month later that somebody said to me, just randomly, "Oh, how come you're not staying in one of the company flats?" Well, no one had told me there were company flats, um, but they had these company flats lying empty. And whereas, whereas for example, I'd want if I'd want to go from New Orleans to Houston, I'd hire a car. Um, they said, "Well, why don't you take the company cars?" And they had cars there company flats and just, just excess. And, and it's the same thing with uh, a whole load of things where you've got too many people not doing, not doing the work and you've got people just charging out um, but not actually contributing anything. So really, there again, it's the simple things that you can do to try and put the company back in some sort of shape. Was there any other time that an opportunity like a turnaround arose and you said that that wasn't for you or you didn't think? Look, I'm so grateful when someone's offered me anything that I've tended to kind of grab anything. Um, and, and also, really, um, I, I kind of, I like a challenge. I do like a challenge. So you, you said, is there any kind of thing that I wouldn't, you know, any kind of company I wouldn't go into? Um, probably not. <laughs> um, but, but what I do try and do now is um, not go into something, and in fact, I, I'm resigned not to do is go into something that is going to give me a lot of aggravation. So, you know, at my stage, I, I suppose I can like pick and choose. Um, I was offered something recently, um, but I looked at the company, and even though like 10 years ago, I'd have grabbed the opportunity because it's a big company, and that would have sort of satisfied my ego. The point is that um, it would have been too much like hard work, and I sense that that company is not going to survive. Um, it's a retail company, and, and I don't think it's going to survive. So 10 years ago, I'd have, done, I'd have gone in there because what have I got to lose? Uh, but now I just walked away. So then when Lord Sugar parachuted you into turn around Amstrad in France and Spain, I think it was. Going to a different country and a different culture, did that affect your work attitude at all? Well, look, the thing is that Alan Sugar is a one-off. Um, and um, uh, I, I had, I, I'd come back from Northern France, this textile company actually, and um, this guy said to me, are you looking for a job? So I said, well, yes, I am, as a matter of fact. Um, so he said, I, I think I know somebody who might be able to offer you a job. So I said, oh, uh, thank you very much. So he said, um, actually, it's my brother-in-law. So I said, oh, that, that sounds really good. Um, so he said, give me your CV and I'll give it to my brother-in-law. So I gave, it, gave him my CV, he gave it to the brother-in-law and the brother-in-law said, no, he's no interest, no interest at all. So I said, oh, fair enough, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And then about two or three weeks later, um, the, the, my friend phoned me up and said, oh, he wants to see you. So I said, well, who, who is he? Who is this he? Uh, it's Alan Sugar. Well, I, I'd vaguely heard of Alan Sugar, but I didn't really, you know, didn't didn't really know him. Um, and you know, when you when you meet somebody kind of kind of famous, 
um, your, your eyes light up and with enthusiasm. So when I first saw Alan Sugar, my eyes lit up with enthusiasm and, and his, light, his eyes didn't light up at all. Uh, um, and we sat at this round table and um, he had my very impressive CV uh, in front of him, um, which actually wasn't that impressive. Um, and um, he didn't say anything. He just sat there and I sat there at this round table and... I thought, well, this is a very peculiar interview. It's non-communic... You know, what's, what's the game here? Um, and um, what he was doing is that he was, he was actually on the sales floor and he was just looking out on the sales floor, paying no attention to me whatsoever. So I said, eventually, I said, um, so shall I tell you something about myself? Go on, then. So, um, so I started telling him about myself. I, I'd done this and I'd done that and how clever and I'm you know, really trying to impress him. And um, he didn't... No eye contact at all. No eye contact. And partway through, um, he's, he's looking out of the window of the sales, um, sales office, and he started whistling. Now, Alan says he didn't whistle, but I, I, do, I do remember him <laughs> whistling. Um, and then I could see he wasn't paying attention. It was a complete waste of time. It was obviously never going to work out between us. And um, uh, he's, I stopped talking, because obviously he wasn't listening. And uh, he got up and walked out. And as he walked out, he said, bored, bored, bored. And I thought, oh, nothing ventured, nothing gained, okay. Um, and I, I was a bit stunned, really. And I got up to walk out, and in comes the sales director, and he said, Alan really likes you, you've got the job. <laughs> what, 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 where, what job, where, what, where, what? <laughs> nothing, and they're hopeless. So, um, in fact, it was a fantastic job. But why he gave it to me is, is a mystery, really. Um, but um, I found myself then running, uh, running the, the kind of European uh, subsidiary of Amstrad. Uh, and what, what didn't dawn on me at that time was the reason I got the job was that the previous uh, incumbent had had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and so, uh, so and, I, and I wasn't really too, too surprised, really. Um, but I'll just tell you, go on a bit more with this story, really. Um, so I had this terrible interview with Alan, this non-interview. The next week, I found myself in, in Paris. And um, th it was a terrible, the company was terrible. It was, it was just a time when some of the Amstrad products were not working well. They were losing their market appeal. It was a very, very difficult time, very difficult time indeed. And um, so for the first few days, I was kind of just fact-finding. I thought that's professional, fact-find. Um, so I, I kind of you know, went to various people and asked them what was wrong and did as much as I could to kind of look at all the problems in the company um, as a prelude to probably fixing them. Um, and with that, I sent a fax. Do you know what faxes are? I don't know fax. <laughs> anyway, so I sent the fax through to, um, to Alan, um, Mr. Sugar at the time. And the, the last bit of my, you know, the last few pages hadn't gone through yet when I got a phone call, picked up the phone. It was Alan. Now, he denies this, by the way, <laughs> but it was Alan absolutely screaming at me, screaming. I won't use the language that he used, um, but the, in, in essence, what he was saying was, look, I'm paying you all this money. Don't, don't get in touch with me again, fix it. And he put the phone down. And so, in a way, I thought, well, that's, after two strikes, I've, I've had two bad experiences with him, um, but at least he's not going to bother me. He's, he's letting me get on with this. So I spent the next year, literally a year, working very, very hard indeed. Uh, the, the team wasn't very good, but somehow or other, we managed to stabilise the company. Uh, we still had problems and, and all kinds of things were going wrong, but the company wasn't doing badly. And then the phone rang, and it was Alan. And he said, pick me up at the airport. So I wasn't quite sure which airport. I was supposed to be London <laughs> airport. I wasn't quite sure. So um, I, went to, uh, I went to the airport in Paris. 
picked him up and I had a very, very nice car, a very a lovely car. It was, um, these, these things impressed me at the time. Uh, it was a BMW 7 Series I inherited from the woman who had the nervous breakdown. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he got in the car and I, was, I, was, I really was quite nervous because I'd really never spoken to the man. Um, and so I went around the peripherique and because I was so nervous, he didn't talk to me, because I was so nervous, um, I, missed, I missed the turning. I just missed the turning. So I thought, oh, shit. But I thought, no, no, I've got to be professional here. No. So I said, oh, sugar. And I thought, oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway. So uh, just, to, just to finish off the story, he came along and he got the, the management team together. And um, they don't speak, he doesn't speak French, although he says he does. And, and um, they don't speak English, and they really don't speak English, the Parisians. Um, so he said, um, is he any good? And they said, no, no, no. So, um, so I, I said to him, I said, they, don't speak, they don't speak the language. So he, he, he walked out of the room. He said, look, I'm going to come back in five minutes, and they better have the right answer for me. So I said, I said look, he's going to come back in. Whatever he says, just say we. Oui. Whatever he says, okay, just, you got it? So we had to practice a few times, they weren't too, a bit thick. Um, and so Alan walks in and uh, he said, uh, is he doing, uh, no, what was it, what he said? Uh, he's not much good, he's not much good, is he? Or something like that. And they said, yeah, I've, got, I've got the story wrong. But in any case, it didn't work out too well. But um, so I took him back to the airport and um, he seemed satisfied enough. Um, and the following day, he phoned me and he said, you're finished, Claude. It's over, finished. Pack your bags and come and see me uh, at Amstrad House. Um, so I said, but no, 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 honestly, Mr. Sugar, honestly, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a really good job. I need a bit more time, but I'm I don't know whether the managers you know, gave you the wrong answers yesterday, but honestly, I'm doing a really good job. I don't want to hear any more. Come and see me tomorrow. So I thought, okay, I've done my best. Um, I went to see him. And I again said to him, I said, look, you don't seem to understand. I've really done well. I said, oh, he said, of course you've done well. You've done brilliantly well. I want you now to go and do, go to Spain and do exactly what you've done in France. <laughs> and that was it. So I got, next week I found myself in France, in Spain. And then my final question before I think we hand over to the okay. audience is, on a similar note in, in Tottenham, what was it like in a slightly different environment where you're not just dealing with the product or the firm, but you've also got the fans, the players, and there's a more multi-dimensional aspect. <coughs> How did you deal in okay. that environment? Look, I've got to say, in retrospect, I didn't do well. I did some things well, but Tottenham was not my finest hour, to be honest. Um, I think that uh, if, I, if I had the Tottenham job now, I'd be very, very good at it. Um, because I'd understand the culture, I'd be much more relaxed about everything. But, uh, but Alan said, look, Claude, what you've got to do is you've got to make profit. That's what you've got to do, you've got to make profit. So, so I'm blaming him, he put me, he, he gave me the wrong steer. Um, so I went in there, sort of all guns blazing really, determined that I was going to transform whatever was going on and make it profitable. It was a publicly quoted company. Um, and I just, I just got the wrong vibe because it's, it is a company, but it's also a club. And I missed the point about the clubbiness of it. Um, and so I was, I, I had conflict with, I had conflict with everybody really. I had conflict with the players because um, I, I didn't, you know, like for example, on one occasion, I went into the Spurs, um, well, on my first day of Spurs, I walked in there and there were a whole load of bottles of milk um, on the front steps of Spurs. And um, I thought that's a bit funny, a bit strange, but maybe they like drinking milk, I don't know. Um, then the second day um, I walked in, there must have been about 10 crates of, of milk the previous day's one and a whole load more milk. So I said to one of the um, kind of uh, 
young ladies there. I said, uh, could you just explain to me what is this, what is, what is this milk? Ah, what happens is that um, when the team decide to train at White Hart Lane, uh, the stadium, then the players have like, like children, it's like a milk break. They have a milk break. Um, they like their milk and biscuits. Um, but we never know whether the, the team are going to train at White Hart Lane or whether they're going to go to the training ground. So what we do is we just order the milk every day. So um, I thought, well, that, that, that is clearly ridiculous. Um, I said, what you've got to do, not knowing anything about football and the culture of the thing, so what you've got to do is um, find out whether they're playing... Oh, this is so logical. Find out whether you're play they're playing at White Hart Lane and then if they're not, don't order the milk. Um, <laughs> I said, but, and, and if they're playing at White Hart Lane, then you can order milk, but don't order the milk from the milkman. Go to Tesco, right opposite, and buy a few cartons of milk and then we, we'll, we won't have any waste. So... Um, Oh, the weekend, we, we lost, and the, um, the kind of caption was, you know, Sugar Supremo Littner um, cancels the milk, and the players are too weak. They were too weak <laughs> to, to win. They had, had no energy. So I, mean, so, so I misjudge the whole element of everything you say or do at Spurs is going to find its way into the newspaper, and not in a complimentary way. So um, we had a board meeting, for example, and a, a, an AGM, and at the AGM, you had to sort of, you know, resolution, who, all those in favour of the resolution. And I, I put my, you know, my hand up like that. Um, and um, then on the Sunday or Saturday in the newspaper, uh, and this is Claude Littner dreaming up some dastardly plot to... I, I, it was just, I, could never, I could never win. I couldn't win with the fans. I couldn't win, win with the manager because the managers would go away um, and they'd just spend money ludicrous amounts of money on unnecessary things. So I had a, a confrontation with, with uh, Jerry Francis on one occasion where um, um, I saw his sort of, um, uh, his expense sheet and on the expense sheet he had um, uh, a, a sort of, a, he'd paid for a movie, an adult movie. So um, I said, I said, no, you're not paying $9.99 for the adult movie. No, I'm not, you're not having that. I said, that's, that's private. That's not, you know, that's not company expense. Um, so he went absolutely berserk at that. And then, of course, Alan comes on the phone and said, do you have to do that for 9.99? Couldn't you let me get away with it? I said, yeah, but you told me that I've got to watch all the expenses. And so I just, I, I didn't, I did well in that. Um, uh, and the other thing is um, that the, the, we had turnstiles at Spurs. So what happens is you'd pay 20 pounds in cash to get into the ground in those days. Um, and so, you know, we'd look around and we'd think, oh, we, you know, we've got 30,000 people in today. It's, it's been a, a good day. And then when I go to the ticket office, th the income did not represent 30,000 bums on seats, so to speak. So I decided that I'd close all the turnstiles and it would be ticket only. Um, well, of course, the style men, they, they went berserk because it had been kind of from generation to generation, this was their business. So, you know, somebody would give them a tenner, they'd put five pounds into Spurs and five pounds into their pocket. And that was, that was a kind of typical thing that, that went on. So I stopped all that. And so, as you can imagine, I wasn't very popular. Um, I wasn't popular with anybody, really, but uh, <laughs> apart from Alan Sugar, who thought I was doing a great job. Um, so I just, I just, you know, if I had my time again, I'd tread more carefully, I'd, I'd be more sensitive to the football fraternity, be more careful with fans, try and appease them a bit more, and not go in sort of um, with just one idea, and that was uh, you know, to make profit. So I'm, I'm in a mess. Well, perfect. Well, let's open the questions up to the floor. So if you want to wait until the microphone gets brought to you, and then stand up when you do. Yeah, let's go to the hand, hand there first. 
Thank you for speaking to us today. I'm really pleased to hear about your bad experiences with Lord Sugar because he was here on Friday and I had never fluffed a question in my life before, <laughs> before Lord Alan Sugar, um, but it was an absolute catastrophe. So um, anyway. Can, can, you, can you not mess this one up so I can sort of I, say... I'll hold, yeah, I'll hold yeah. my nerve this time, yeah. but we'll see. Um, so you've made your way through businesses that have actually improved the lives of many people, but around, 34, uh, around 35 to 45% of all the wealth in the US is inherited. And given the increasing inequality, it doesn't seem to be trickling down in the way that we were promised. So we have a situation where there's a huge amount of money and the political influence and power that comes with it, uh, which is just sitting at the top with people who have no experience of the world. And there's others seeking, uh, who are working you know, 40 hours a week on minimum wage and have no chance of even owning their own home. So can we really say that we're living in a meritocracy? And if so, how come? And if not, what can we do to change that? Okay, look, that's a very, very deep question, to be honest with you. Um, it's not easy to answer. Um, but you talk about people who can't, can't, you know, can't buy their houses or wherever it is. Um, when I was young, I couldn't buy my house either. Um, so um, it's only through working and saving and trying to do my best that I got enough money together to put a uh, down payment down to actually buy my first house. So um, I I'm very much against um, uh, everyone having for things for free. Um, you know, that's the message that Labour Party seemed to be peddling at the moment, that you can have uh, schools, you know, university free, um, housing free, everything free. There's nothing that comes free. Nothing comes free. I think you've got to work for everything. And I think there are too many people, and I think you know, the younger generation are probably guilty of this as well, is that they want things for nothing. They're not prepared to really graft, um, make their way in life. Some are successful, some are not so successful, and, and work for what you want to achieve. And not everyone can achieve. Not everyone's going to get to the top. Um, but I think, there again, the most important thing is wherever you end up, um, is to be happy with what you're doing. Because I think a lot of um, weight is put on earning lots and lots and lots of money. And the truth is that um, in the end, you don't know what you're going to do with all this money. Um, you can't take it with you. So you can pass it down to your children. You can make um, uh, you know, philanthropic gifts and things like that. Um, but in the end, I think that very, very, very wealthy people are doing their bit um, to benefit other people. But I think to a certain extent, the problem is very great where you've got um, a number of people who have worked very hard and been very successful, and you've got a lot of people who actually just want everything for free. And I think that, that is the problem. So I think there is inequality, and it pains me that there's inequality, um, but I think that there's too many people who are quite willing to sit back and want things f for nothing. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a real problem. So I don't know if what I'm saying is, is right. I'd be interested in hearing really what, you know, how you feel about things really. But from where I'm sitting, um, I just think that I've worked hard and I've been very, very lucky. I don't, I don't deny that for a minute, but I've worked hard for what I've got. Um, and from my point of view, if I can um, help the younger generation, make sure that my children and grandchildren are well provided for, as long as they're not going to go out and buy a Ferrari, but actually they're going to work for the, they're going to work and they've got the supplement of the fact that I've been successful and, and, and I can help them, um, then you know, that's, that's great. Uh, then, yeah, let's jump to the hand, you sir. Um, I'm sure many of us have enjoyed your interviews on The Apprentice over the years. Um, I was just wondering if your like, interview style 
um, on The Apprentice like alters at all from how you would normally conduct a business interview and if you like <laughs> as in do you change it for the entertainment factor at all or is it just okay. the same well uh, the point is that um, uh, the apprentice interviews are not real interviews okay quite clearly they're not they're not real interviews that's not to say that some of the elements aren't the same in that um, you would want to look at their business plan although for an interview, probably for a job, so you'd want to look at their CV and challenge them on it and try and get to the bottom of it. Um, but I think that, uh, that in a, a real interview, clearly it's a two-way process, is that I want to see if you are right for the company and you want to see if you know, there's a chemistry whereby you're going to be successful. So I want to pick the right candidate and you want to pick the right company. So I think that that's where... Um, that's the place for a real interview. And I will be very, very courteous and careful with you because I want to attract you, assuming you're the right candidate. And you clearly want to find out whether this is a company where you're going to prosper. Um, in The Apprentice, it's nothing like that at all because um, uh, I've got all the cards and power um, and, um, and, I, and I exercise that, that, con that control. Um, and of course, you've got the production company and their mission in life is to entertain the viewers and make sure the viewing figures are up. So my interview can last, with each candidate, can last 40 minutes. What you might see is two minutes of me saying, get out, or something horrible <laughs> like that. Or, um, but that's not representative, actually, of that interview. Um, and certainly, don't ever, ever, ever copy uh, my interview style on The Apprentice. <laughs> Let's jump to another question. Uh, yeah, to the hand, straight across here, Jamie. Hi, thank you. Um, do you ever feel that Lord Sugar makes the wrong decision with who he invests in in the end? And oh. any examples? Um, uh, obviously not. Um, uh, look, um, I think by the time you get to um, to that point in in the process where you're down to the last five candidates, I think um, you look at the business plans, and I think it's almost certain that you know which one or two candidates are going to um, prevail because um, clearly you read, the, you, 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 you know the candidates, you've, you've, I've interviewed five candidates, um, some of the business plans are not good and they're not good but they're also impossible to make good. So for example, um, some of the, uh, some of the um, business proposals, you can tweak them, you can change them, you can, you can massage them in some sort of way to make them into something that could be a business, and some of them are just not going to be, you know, just it's not going to fly, it's not going to work. So what you're down to really is two candidates, um, and then really it's Alan Sugar's call as to who he thinks he can work best with, who he thinks um, can actually make a business where he doesn't have too much involvement in terms of his time, and the person is mature enough to actually run their own business with his guidance and mentoring. And so almost every year we get to the situation where. The viewer doesn't see it, but it, the, the winner picks himself or herself almost. So um, throughout, the t throughout the time, we can see who's got business acumen, who's got um, a good work ethic, and then pile that onto a good business plan, um, and th the winner is self-evident. So this year, for example, you had Sean. Actually, this year, we had two not very good winners. And I don't mean that badly, it's just that... Um, the companies that they had are difficult companies. So Sean, who won, she's got a swimwear company. 
And even though she's a very good candidate, clever, smart, very creative designer, the swimwear industry is very, very tough. And so whether she can make it or not, who knows, but she's a good candidate. The other one, um, whose name I've momentarily forgotten, but you'll help me on this. Camilla, uh, Camilla thank you. Camilla, she had this nut milk product um, and it's red hot. So that's a great, great position that she's in. I think she lacks maturity. Um, she's very young and I'm not sure that she has got the, um, the ability to take the business as far as Alan Sugar would like it. So in a way, in our minds, um, I'm not saying it was the best of a bad lot, that's not true, but we weren't blessed with candidates which immediately fell off the page and said, that's, that's really investable. So um, we've gone, Alan's gone with Sean. I think she'll do well because she's a very clever girl and she's got um, um, commercial ability, but she's in a market which is very, very tough. So do I disagree with him? Not really, not really. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that because you know, I'm being, uh, you, know, uh, you know, wanting to be nice to him. Um, but generally, we have a lot of conversations. Karen and I speak to Alan all the time about the candidates, what we think is good, what we think is bad, because Alan doesn't see the candidates other than in the boardroom. So he relies totally on our, um, the information that we give him almost on an hour-by-hour -hour basis. I mean, the way it works, which, of course, you don't see, is that you know, we're with the candidates. Karen and I are with the candidates all day long, all the time. Um, and every hour we're emailing Alan as to who said what, what's happening, who's doing what. I mean, it's frustrating, and Karen's really good at this, so I'm always under pressure because, because Karen sends her email to me and to Alan, so I can see immediately you know, what, you know, you know, that she's really on top of everything. So I'm writing furiously. Meanwhile, Alan's phoning me out saying, I haven't got your, I haven't got your, I haven't got your, you know, I haven't got your thing. I'm saying, I'm going, it's on its way, it's on its way. Uh, so, um, but, uh, but I think that at the end, we do know who the winner is. The idea is not to, to ensure that the viewer doesn't know, so we want to keep that jeopardy going all the way through, but we do kind of, we kind of know who's really succeeded. Uh, yeah, let's come to the hand over here, Jimmy. Thank you again, first of all, for coming to talk to us. It's been fantastic. Um, but I just want to ask a sort of question about leadership and business. And I guess this can sort of cross over somewhat with The Apprentice as well. Um, is that you sort of spoke about Lord Sugar earlier saying he's sort of a, a one in a million, this sort of unique character and, and, and talent. And then you sort of said your own strengths very much lie in, um, well, marshalling people who, who are sort of very talented individuals. Um, and so to what extent would you, you say that actually most leadership in business is about that sort of giving the space for people to perform rather than having a sort of unique sort of entrepreneurial skill set and, and well sort of yeah one in a million kind of thing. Yeah. Well I think it's both really. I mean, I mean uh, I've been with Alan on and off uh, a long long time and he can be very annoying. There's no, there's no doubt about that but he is brilliant and um, um, I, I chair uh, uh, a number of, the, of his companies, but I chair them in name only because the moment he walks in the door, my chairmanship kind of goes out the window because he comes in and dictates exactly what he wants to hear. But he is, he's just very, very clever. And he's not clever in a way which is um, show-offy or anything like that. He's just common sense. He's got a lot of knowledge about a lot of things that... Um, uh, are quite surprising really and he uses that to good effect so I think that he doesn't know everything and I'm pleased that he doesn't know everything because that gives me a sense of some sort of you know uh, ego but um, but he comes to the board meetings he asks very good questions and he's um, 
he's, he's just very, very clever. And so to a certain extent, I think that in order to manage companies, I think you've got to have that cleverness. And to a certain extent, I've got that commercial cleverness. Um, and also trying to get the most out of people. Now, the way that Alan gets the most out of people is unfathomable because he's, um, I'm, I'm kind of not exactly warm and cuddly, but I'm um, <laughs> consensual in, in, in working with people. I want to get the best out of people and I'm prepared to really do a lot to get the best out of people. Um, whereas Alan, he just evokes loyalty and I, I can't, I'm in it myself and he's not nice to me I think he likes me, um, but he's not nice to me, but I know he appreciates me. I know that he values me, but he's never ever said, never took me aside, put his arm around me and say, oh, you're a really good bloke, Claude. Never. <laughs> um, uh, and I long for that day. Uh, uh, but, but, but he's got a way of, um, of just, um, just, he's just, I, I don't know what it is, but he's just, you're attracted to him uh, by virtue of the fact that he is clever without being clever, if you know what I mean. And I just think that, um, uh, I, think he's, I think he's just, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he's just, he just is. And uh, all the board meetings I go to, there's not a board meeting that I step away from the board meeting without thinking, he's, he's fantastic. Because he just picks, he's got this ability to just pick the area where we need to focus on. Um, so I think he's good. Having said that, um, I work with his sons and his sons would much rather speak to me than speak to the father because I'm much more, not easygoing, but somehow or other I'm more helpful. You know, Alan's not helpful in the way that, um, that I am. I know it sounds silly to say this. Um, so, and also, of course, there's a bit of a trap there because you know, the, one of the sons will phone me up and say, well, what do you think I should do? And I, I'm very pleased that they phone me. And so I, I give them some advice as to what, what I think. Obviously, they've got to make their own mind up. But I, the way I think that they should play some, some particular thing. Um, so they do that, and then we get to the next board meeting the next month, and Alan says, what, why, why, did you, why did you do that? And the son said, well, Claude said. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in a way, and Alan accepts that, accepts that, but I get sort of lumbered with, um, you know, kind of falling in between two stools. Let's jump to another question. Yeah, the hand in the back. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, you mentioned a lot of instances where management didn't pursue the objective of profit maximisation. Uh, to what extent do you think that this is a result of the UK's corporate governance structure, which it, with its heavy emphasis on shareholder capitalism? So what's the question exactly? What was the, what so was the beginning of the question? Because in the UK you have dispersed shareholders, so you have a principal agent problem whereby the shareholders often can't monitor the management and thus management is often free to pursue their own objectives, whereas like in other countries, say in Germany and Japan, that's not as much of an issue. So do you think the corporate governments needs reforming to rectify that issue? Or well, I, I don't know. I, I, look, you've, you've, always got, you've always got management and people who think they can you know, push the boundary or try and get away with something or line their own pockets or do things that are not necessarily in the company's interest. But by and large, by and large, I think that if you've got to the position of authority, um, if you're a director of a company, your objective is to make sure that that company succeeds. You want to look after your workforce. Uh, you want to make sure that you're doing the socially the right kind of things. Uh, you want to make sure that your shareholders are reasonably comfortable with your performance. You want to make sure that you've got a stream of dividends. You want to make sure that you've got 
um, uh, profits that flow through, that you're making the right kind of decisions. So by and large, I think you've got laws and um, uh, you know, institutions who are monitoring things. Uh, and I know we've had a lot of flack from some of the auditor companies who have not audited companies well enough. Um, but the thing is that business is complex and sometimes the auditors don't understand quite all the things that are going on. I'm just thinking of um, this patisserie Valerie, for example, um, where um, I think the, the chairman, for example, he just didn't have enough control on the company and wasn't managing and monitoring things well enough. And so there was lots of bits of fraud and funny business that's going on. But I'm not sure that a more stringent um, uh, kind of enforceable regulations is necessarily going to kind of cure that. And it may actually dissuade people from taking risks, calculated risks, and trying to do the best for their company and move it forward into new areas. So I think there's always opportunity for reform, but I think we haven't got it too badly wrong here. Then is there another question? I mean, unusually, really, I'd, I'd really like to hear what your, what your take is on some of these things, because I've got my kind of old-fashioned view, but where, you know, from where you're sitting, what, what's your, what, what do you think? I'm, I'm addressing you, actually, at the back there, the last question. Oh, well, I think on well, corporate yes, governance. Yes, I mean, what, what do you think? How, how do you think that... Uh, well, well I, I think that it's like a necessary thing that you have to accept because like there's no system that's perfect and as you said if you had more stringent regulations it would reduce risk taking so I think that there are like ways around it so for example you could include in management compensation more stock options for example so then that would entice managers more to pursue the goals that shareholders want and but no I think it's I think our system of corporate governance is the best system you can have. Yes. I, mean, I mean, share options is an interesting one, really, because um, you know, I was always very, very grateful when I got share options because, OK, you had to stay in the company for three years, uh, if you like, but it was, it was a very, very kind of uh, very, very nice way of giving me a, a, a nice reward at the end of that period. But I think these stock options have got out of hand uh, because I think what happens is you've got... Um, stock options to some you know, very senior you know, chairman, chief executives of very large companies. And um, they, necessarily, they don't necessarily work very hard. They haven't actually earned um, their stock option. So I think that um, sometimes these things are handed out a bit like confetti. Um, and I think people re get rewarded without actually having done the work to bring about that reward. And I think that is, you know, that is an area where actually, interestingly, I think there's something that should be done there's got to be much more of a match of stock option with performance rather than just a stock option. You survive for three years and you've got these shares at a very, very low price. Then I think we've got time for one final question, if there is one. Yeah, the hand in the back. Hand in the back. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> um, how are you finding the companies that you're working with are uh, responding to the increasing importance of sustainability? And how much is it still um, inferior to profit maximising in these companies? Okay. Um, I, I'm not... No, I, I think sustainability is, is critical. All these things are very, very important. Uh, the companies that I'm working with give very, very little credence to that at all. Um, they're mainly companies that are either startups or growth companies, and they're not in either not not for profit or in sort of social responsibility areas. They're really just trying to carve a niche for themselves. Um, so I think that 
you know, my experiences I'm going at the moment, and when I look back at my experience, uh, my experiences over my career, is that um, those kind of things have not featured very high. It's been much more, um, you know, how much money can we make? Um, uh, how can we incentivize our, our staff to stay with us uh, and create more value for shareholders? And I think that um, those kind of important things, increasingly important things, um, from my experience, um, have not featured very high. But I reckon that you know, the younger generation, it, it does, it does fe feature very highly in their thought process. But um, for me, it's, um, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, a dinosaur, really. And I'm far more interested in profit um, and making sure the company is sustainable rather than a whole load of other things which are very important. Well, actually, I think we do have time for one final question, if there is one, because we've still got time to get one. Uh, let's go to the hand in the back. Yeah, you said the hand in the back. Hi. Um, maybe a trivial one, but you said you gave quite a lot of your money to your kids, but if you're just spending money on yourself, what's your biggest luxury? Okay. I'm, I'm a very, I think I'm a very unusual person, and I say that because um, I've never wanted anything. And, and I know that sounds very odd. I care about nothing material. I, d I just, I do not care. Also, my other problem is that um, I can't spend money. I can't, I, I, I'm, I've got it in my psyche so much about saving money. I haven't got a clue what I'm saving it for, other than for my children and grandchildren, um, that uh, really, um, I, I, there's nothing I want. So um, uh, that I've, I'm living in a house that I've lived in for nearly 40 years. I've done it up a bit. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got electric lights now and, and things like that. Um, but but I, don't, I don't care about material things. I don't. Um, my pursuit has not so much been for money. It's been for turning a company around and making it good again. Um, and it's not, I'm not a saint because I've obviously wanted to benefit from that. But it's, um, it's not just been the pursuit of money somehow. It's um, because I, I've, got, I, I've got nothing I want to spend it on. Uh, I mean, I suppose I'm lucky that my children don't suffer from the same um, uh, frailty. Uh, they have no problem spending money. Um, uh, but I just, uh, there's, there's actually, I mean, what do I want? I'd like to carry on living. I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to be alive. I'd like to be well. Um, that's what I want out of life. And all these material things mean nothing to me at all. I've got no interest in a boat, a plane. Uh, I just, I don't care about it. I don't want it. It means nothing to me. So, so why did you do it? Is it ego? Or? I because I, I enjoy the challenge. I like a challenge. And also, because, um, you know, because I've got this hang-up about the fact that I wasn't good at school um, and struggled to pass exams and all that kind of thing, um, I just, I've got this thing that I just, I just want to challenge myself, prove myself, um, and that's kind of been the thread through my life, really. And um, look, I'm very, very happy with the way things have turned out. Um, I've been very lucky in business. I've worked very, very hard. Uh, and I, as I said right at the beginning, I was lucky, and I think you've got to look for your luck as well, in finding the one thing, or the many things, probably in your case, that you're good at and that you enjoy. Because the pursuit of money for its sake, money's sake, is honestly futile. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous. You want to have enough to enjoy life, to provide for your family, um, but the key for your life, as you've only got one life, is to actually make sure that you're happy in what you're doing and that you're doing, you're doing what you want to do, um, as opposed to just chasing money. I just, I think that's, that's absurd. 
Well, what a place to end. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please do join with me in thanking Tolina. <laughs> <laughs>